Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's 10,000 years ago. It's a Thursday. And the warm, yellow sun is beginning to set in the Euphrates Valley, in what is now Syria. Everything around you is lush. Not far off are wild strands of wheat and barley grass with their ripe seeds swaying heavily in the breeze. And through them move some of our ancient ancestors, their foraging fingers skillfully knocking the heavy grains into sacks, a little bit like Russell Crowe in the opening scene of Gladiator. They'll take what they gather back to the grinding stone to be made into breads and porridges. Sadly, Instagram had not yet been invented, so they couldn't post self-important pictures of how amazing their sourdough was and how healthy and super delicious their overnight oats were. In fact, this isn't a village. This isn't even farming, not yet, but it's coming. These are our ancestors taking a slow, lingering walk away from being hunter-gatherers and into becoming farmers with everything that follows. Buildings, hierarchical societies, the creation of wealth, politics, the beginnings of true human history. Hello and welcome to another episode of Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. Exactly when, where, how, why did our ancient ancestors invent farming? It's one of the great questions of archaeology and surely it'll tell us something profound about us as a species, about humanity and the journey that we're on. But, surprise, surprise, there may not be an easy answer. My guest today, Robert Spengler, is a leading paleobotanist, which is someone who studies ancient plants, and he is currently finishing a book on the domestication of plants, and will hopefully give us, if not the answer, some kind of answer. Enjoy.
I'm delighted to welcome Robert Spengler to the show from the Max Planck Institute. We were just discussing the Max Planck Institute. I thought there was just one Max Planck Institute. Turns out there's loads. Yes, well, it's great to be here. We're at the Max Planck Institute for Geoanthropology in, in Jena, Germany. So we're one of 83 institutes globally. It's like TK Maxx. There's just lots of them. All over the world, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing could be less like TK Maxx that is than true. the Max Planck <laughs> Institute. Are you an archaeobotanist? Yeah, that's the, the title I, I tend to go by. Paleoethnobotanist also works, but uh, archaeobotanist is a little easier to say. It sounds it's, well. It sounds kind of badass. Like if Spielberg <laughs> was, if he wanted to do a new Indiana Jones, he should go down that you know, archaeobotanist route. I think. Yeah, well, like so many archaeologists, uh, it's actually a lot more boring than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> to idiots like me, to the lay people like me, it's very, very exciting. But this is the problem with any discipline that you're in. Once you're in it, you can't see the wood for the trees. You just get no. involved in the in the weeds of the detail. That's a good pun there, yes. I enjoy it very much. We mostly spend time at microscopes, but I do get to do field work in Central Asia, which is pretty exciting. That's pretty exciting. And you've got a book out, or coming out. Is it out? Uh, so I have one book out, uh, Fruit from the Sands, at University of California Press, yeah. and another one forthcoming with Cambridge Press on domestication. This is why I've got you on, because I'm, I'm interested in this. <laughs> and actually, I tell you the really thing I'm most excited about this, about who invented farming, is that it's not Thomas Edison. <laughs> yeah. Because normally, normally most invention stories are, oh, well, Thomas Edison did it first, or Leonardo da Vinci yeah. invented it you know, in a sketchy day. Well, this is one that uh, can't be traced back to one individual or even one Damn. single group of people. Really? And, yeah, and not a simple invention, more of a complex developmental process. I like to keep it clean and precise. I like <laughs> names, I like dates. Okay, well, in that case, well, that's a good place to start, I think. Well, what, well, maybe we should define our terms. I mean, what does the end point look like when we say the invention of farming? Maybe, I mean, we can all, ima when I imagine farming, I imagine tractors and <laughs> such. But what, what do you mean when you say, when we talk about farming? Yeah, so let's keep it simple and say the cultivation of domesticated plants and animals. And it's important that we kind of keep these terms, domestication and cultivation, separate. But it's a slow developmental process that took thousands of years to really take hold in earlier human populations. Well, I'm going to ask some really stupid questions. So forgive me for asking really stupid questions. Not I mean, at all. So, so basically, we were hunter gatherers at some point, and then at some point, we stuck some seeds in the ground and went, "Oh my god! Look, if you stick seeds in the ground, then you get crops." What was the thing that kind of made that leap, that kind of crossover to sort of agriculture? Was there a yeah. thing, an event, or a, or a, was it migration or climate? Or what was it? Yeah, so this is definitely not a silly or stupid question. This is a great question, and it's one that the field of scholars... It feels like it's a question which is like, give me all of your research you've done for decades yeah. into one soundbox. Well, <laughs> it's not my research. It's hundreds, thousands of scholars over the last century working on that question. I, I usually refer to that as the great why question. Uh, because okay. it's becoming increasingly clear that this question of why did humans do this is one of the greatest trick questions in the sciences. So it's it's not easy to answer. It's possibly impossible to answer. And that's uh, largely dependent on your view here. So the long-held view of the origins of agriculture debate has been something that is sometimes called the core area one event model. Uh, but Ooh, we can sorry, kind say of that again. The, the core, core event, area. Core area. One event. One event. What, what the heck's that? But we can kind of think of this as the human innovation model. So humans invented farming and it happened because of 
some kind of external factor. And this view, which has dominated scholarship for the last hundred years, uh, it usually relies on either arguments of population pressure, so they needed to feed all the mouths in their population, or climate change. And sometimes they'll talk about the pull arguments, which are the leisure time that they had to kind of innovate or invent farming. But in either case, this is all tied to an idea that humans invented this. And really starting in 2009, the field has shifted away from this idea, kind of embracing something that I like to call the Darwinian approach, but it's, it's a much more ecological approach to this. And it thinks about the origins of agriculture as a very slow developmental process. So no one individual invented farming, no one people. In fact, it likely developed in many different places around the world completely independently. And this is a kind of an exciting turn in the field and a new way to think about it. But it, it means that the simple answer of why did it happen is, is unanswerable because there are many different processes at play. OK, first of all, I want to know, when are we talking about? Can we just sort of paint a picture of where we are? So we're all running around with spears, hunting mammoths and eating like the Flintstones. Yes. That's my picture. <laughs> what kind of period of time is it? Do we start to see this new behavioural practice? So the first evidence anywhere in the world is still the, the Fertile Crescent in Southwest Asia, what uh, you learn about in your Origins of Agriculture or Archaeology 101 textbook, mm -hmm. the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, this uh, Zagros foothill zone. And that's about 10,000 years ago. Why do we know that? Like, did we find things or did archaeologists discover evidence of some kind? Probably the best studied area for this question and archaeologists since really the, the 40s and 50s have been looking for animal bones and plants in archaeological sites that show the earliest traits of domestication. So they can actually see these steps in domestication. Mm -hmm. And then linked to that, looking for things like sickle blades, which would have been evidence for the behavioral practices of cultivation. So mm -hmm. two different lines of evidence here kind of coming together to really paint this beautiful picture of how this process happened and when it happened. That's what we know. We don't think it started there. We think perhaps it started in lots of different places around that time. It just so happens that's the area that archaeologists have kind of come across. It's the area that is the best studied, and that's probably due to a kind of Eurocentric bias because it okay. is where that's interesting. wheat, barley, lentils, peas... Uh, the crops that went on to kind of foster the Neolithic in Europe, they're all coming from the Fertile Crescent. So it makes sense that early European archaeologists would be very interested in understanding that area. So it has received the most attention, but uh, over the last 50 years or so, scholars have looked much more closely in places like East Asia and Eastern China and the lower Yangtze River Valley, where you can see the earliest evidence for rice domestication or further north in China, where broom corn and foxtail millet were domesticated, as well as in kind of Central America with maize domestication. So these are all early kind of centers of domestication. Let's just imagine we're in the Fertile Crescent and we get in our DeLorean and we hitch a ride back to 1955, not 1955, back to 10,000 years ago. What would the farming have looked like when you, you know, when they're saying when they're cultivating seeds? What would they make out of it? What would the grain look like? What would they do? Would, would they have fields? Just paint a picture for us. Yeah. So again, this is going to depend on whether you take this kind of 
human agency or human innovation approach or whether you think of it as a much more unconscious process that humans are engaged in. But the kind of leading way of thinking about this now is that these foraging populations moved into this area and there were wild stands or wild fields of wheat, barley, and their relatives. So these fields of grasses, when they're ripe, They have their seeds on the top of the plants. So these foragers could have very easily walked through these fields, kind of knocking the seeds or the grains into baskets or into kind of sacks where they then would have processed off the outer shells and and ground them into either porridge or probably fairly early on bread, uh, which is is something that may even predate uh, farming in a kind of fertile crescent. Who invented uh, bread? <laughs> can, we, can we just sidetrack it? To, who yeah. invented the first loaf of bread? That's, that's a great question. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think we really have the, the answer for that one. It's but one of those things we, we seem to have been doing forever, but at some, at some point somebody yeah. must have ground some seeds up and, and well, added the, the, water. And, the one important clue we have is grinding stones, and they go back before the earliest uh, cultivation practices. So it's possible that bread was around before agriculture. Sourdough was invented by hipsters, (laughs) annoying hipsters uh, around the time of Instagram. They've kind of reinvented it, we'll say, (laughs) or resurrected it. Actually, it's quite a good point, because the whole point about sourdough is you don't add yeast. It's just natural bacteria from the air that gets in. So presumably the first breads must have been hipster sourdough. Um, yeah, and, and not so leavened because uh, a lot of the early grains prior to kind of the, the bread wheat domestication, which is much later in time, were, mm. were not, they didn't have the, the high glutens. They didn't leaven as well as, as our modern bread. Uh, so it would have been a much denser product, something unlike a lot of the breads that we think of today. Hipsters would have loved that. They would have <laughs> loved that. And so back in the Fertile Crescent 10,000 yeah. years ago, so things like breads and porridges were being made. Would they have had animals at the same time next door would they have had a couple of cows grazing in a field so definitely when the first foragers or hunter gatherers moved in there were herds of gazelle and other animals on the same landscape that would have been covered in fields of wild wheat and barley so as they started hunting these animals the fields of wild wheat and barley kind of opened up more to humans and there was less competition between humans and these grazing animals but they they also eventually started to pull in uh, sheep, goat, and cow, which also fit into this early kind of Neolithic package in the Fertile Crescent. So mm. wheat, barley, a bunch of legumes like peas and lentils, as well as sheep, goat, and cow, all fairly early on, about 10,000 years ago, uh, pulled together in a very integrated cultivation system that led to massive population growth and that uh, population growth spread this population across Europe and into kind of Western Asia as well. It's really interesting. You know, you say obviously it wasn't just one group of people at one particular on one particular Thursday, but the idea of planting a seed in the ground and it coming up, there must have been some kind of leap of understanding where somebody did that for the first time and go, oh my God, I planted a seed there and look, a shoot's come up, right? Yeah. And I could use that and use my forethought and use my imagination, my big brain to imagine I could then, I don't know, I'm just trying to imagine being being a Neolithic person and coming up with that idea for the first time. And of course, that's the way most scholars would have completely visualized this process until fairly recently. But this kind of what has been coined a paradigm shift in the field, it fits the Kuhnian idea of, of a shift because it, it 
forces us to rethink everything that we all just took for granted, that, that some really ingenious person must have come up with the idea of planting seeds and that was agriculture. But that's really not the way most scholars, and I, I'm, I should be careful to say that not everybody uh, fits into one or the other of these two views, but it's the majority of the field since about 2009 has kind of shifted their paradigm to this. That's interesting. So where's the smart money then? If it's not Eureka moment, where's the smart money? Well, if you think of it more as a gradual process, once human populations started growing, they were able to cultivate more land and it became gradually more intensive. So, so I think it's better to think about it more as a snowball effect. So it got momentum going, and then it couldn't be reversed without complete disruption of the population. What, okay, in terms of these out, outside effects, what was it that's changed this human behaviour? What made people more sedentary? Or what that decision, was it Was it the fact that they discovered domestication of animals and farming, and that made sense so they could build villages and plan in advance? Or was it something else? Was it a migration? What was the climate yeah. doing? So there's still debates on this. And I think this is a question that's going to have to be answered separately for each of these different centers of domestication, because there's no necessary reason to believe that what works for the Fertile Crescent also works for the Lower Yangtze River Valley. But if we think about it being a intertwined and complex process of human population growth, uh, increased sedentism, and segmenting of the population to different kind of labor groups or craft specialization, all these different processes unfolding slowly over time and then requiring increasing investment into farming, then it's a completely different way of thinking about it. And early on, the earliest farmers also show good evidence for continuing to forage and to hunt at the same time. So it wasn't wasn't a sudden twist. They didn't just suddenly turn off the hunting bit. Yeah, no, it, it was a very much a, a slow change in, in human behavior. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered in that Deptford Inn? Was Amy Dudley, wife of Elizabeth I's favourite Robert, pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Were the Guise, that great French family, actually bloodthirsty murderers who secured their power through ruthlessness and violence? And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me but not on an empty stomach, for not just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just, okay, so we've got a, a, bit, a bit of an idea that just explain to us, if you could, well, what was the effects of farming? Like, how did human beings as a, as a species change? Suddenly we move from being nomadic and hunter-gathering to suddenly farming. In, in the sort of scale of inventions, <laughs> where does farming rank in terms of useful things? Yeah, yeah. So this is actually also not the easiest thing to answer. I, I think Sorry, the, I'm giving you – this is, this is what come with giving you ridiculous questions. From they're, they're absolutely wonderful questions. And a few of the scholars for the last hundred years have been grappling with these questions. The problem is they can never come to consensus and they do like to very much – well, science yes. isn't about consensus. We don't want consensus. We want well. If we if we, we knew the evidence. answers, if we knew the answers, it wouldn't be interesting to do the research. Anyway. Well, there you so. go. It's the, I always correct people. It's the difference between science and knowledge, which are two very different things. Anyway, sorry. So what we what we kind of do have a bit of a consensus on is farming allows people to increase their population size. That's hard to dispute. Looking at the archaeological record, so hunter gatherer populations are very ephemeral across the landscape, low population densities. There really is no good evidence for a large-scale city of hunter-gatherers. Well, so 10,000 years ago, at that sort of cusp, what was the population of the planet, given we're at whatever we are at, 8 billion now or 9 billion or whatever we are? Yeah, I, I, I don't know offhand, but we're talking in the in the millions. Like millions, it's, 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 right? Yes. So it, yeah, it's yeah. a orders yeah. of magnitude difference. Yes. Okay. But the the rapid scale of change is hard to dispute in the in the archaeological record. It's within very short periods of time, human population increases, and it's not just in the Fertile Crescent that this plays out. It's all of the centers of domestication. Uh, once people start cultivating plants, and especially once animals get into this kind of complex mix, the human population grows. And it's basically tied into the simple reasoning that humans do not, like animals, they do not just breed uncontrolled. They decide how many children they wish to have. So if they have lots of food available, they're going to have more children. If they have limited food available, they will have less children. It's a pretty simple principle, but it seems to hold up across all modern human populations. Now, what this means is you get expansion of farming populations, uh, and there's a, a model in Europe for the Neolithic that was called the Demic Wave Hypothesis, and it was heavily attacked in the 90s uh, by scholars who really pushed the idea that uh, maybe foragers in Europe could have just been handed 
seeds from farmers and learned how to farm independently, kind of a, a passing down the line process. But in the last 10 years or so, with, with the genomics revolution in human genetics, it's become increasingly clear from archaeogenetics that the early Neolithic of Europe was just kind of a wave of human uh, farming populations moving across Europe and, and populating it all because their, their demic growth was so great, it kind of What's moved the across demic? the area. Demic. Uh, demographic. So, oh, demographic. Oh, I see. I see. What you yeah. Mean. So they they just they reproduced at a much much faster rate than any hunter gatherer population, and over uh, time they pretty much pushed most of the hunter gatherer populations to the corners of the globe. In terms of in terms of climate, are we t- we're talking t- talking post ice age. So is, is it that the the Earth got warmer, and so that naturally allowed for things like farming and, and the earth was more fertile and, and so people it, could migrate further north from, yeah. from the and, Middle East. And yes, the Holocene is a, a particularly ideal period of stability and we're still living in this wonderful climatic time period if you look at the grand scheme of Earth's history. Mm. Uh, but that said, places like North America, uh, the origins of agriculture is only about four to 5,000 years ago. So it's well into the Holocene. So, so this idea that suddenly there was a quick snap in the, in the climate and everybody started farming, uh, that doesn't really hold up either. It's over the course of the last 10,000 years, different groups of people in different parts of the world in different environmental settings. So some of the origins of agriculture zones are are tropical forests, some are in hyper-arid areas and in oases. So it's all different environmental settings, all different cultural settings uh, where these processes start to unfold. Got it. Talk to us a little bit, just to sort of wrap up, about, about the consequences of farming. Here we are now. Farming is ridiculous and complex and <laughs> on industrial scales and beyond anything. But just the consequences of early farming in terms of how human beings developed and how we changed. Yeah. There's, again, two camps kind of in this view as well. And and, uh, sometimes they're called the cultural optimists and the cultural pessimists. And the cultural pessimists, I think, are are getting a bit of a heyday right now in the popular literature. So you have people like James Scott, who wrote Against the Grain, or or Graeber and Rengro, uh, which is becoming increasingly popular right now with The Dawn of Everything. Uh, and they kind of view this as as a negative thing for humanity, that in James Scott's case, agriculture allowed for larger populations, creating the first urban centers and social hierarchy, what we, what we kind of commonly call the state. And for him, that led to the oppression of humanity. So, so farming directly responsible, really, for social hierarchy and... and- well, the, uh, I think the term directly would be debated depending on who you ask. I'm happy to use, yes, directly. Uh, I would use that, but there are a lot of other scholars that say it's kind of a, a much more indirect result. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but one way or the other, you, you can't have large human uh, populations in dense pockets without agricultural systems. And you tend not to get chunks of a population or portions of a population set aside to either do political pursuits or scientific or intellectual pursuits or separate from food procurement, unless you have a highly effective farming systems where there's a, a food surplus. And so you need that, well, also pr- presumably the kind of nutritional value of, of farming, having regular meat, all that kind of, and, and not having to die in the process of getting it mm-hmm. means that humans can concentrate on other things and, yeah, and, and develop you know, neurologically and, and 
Yeah, and I don't want to paint all uh, hunter-gatherer or foraging populations as being food-deprived. Some of them probably were, were living in the deeper past when there wasn't, when they weren't pushed to the kind of margins of, of the, the prime land where agricultural populations just kind of by sheer size took over. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there definitely would have been uh, ideal situations for hunter-gatherers to live lives of, of leisure. But if the goal is to have a kind of more scientifically developed population, then food surplus is is one of the the essentials that allowed that to really take hold. That's so interesting. Now, listen, uh, what for you as a archaeobotanist, what's the big unknown for you in your field, not just for you, but for your peers as well? What's the thing that eludes you is just out of reach, which you'd like to solve or tackle and, and win the Nobel Prize? For? <laughs> well, I don't think there's many Nobel Prizes in, in, in this, this line of research. There will uh, be research, after this. But... <laughs> They'll set it up, honestly. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think the new, I guess, set of questions is coming out of this kind of paradigm shift that I've already mentioned, that, that if we stop asking the, the why did humans do this question and start uh, thinking about it as a gradual process that happened as humans were engaging in these cultivation behaviors, then things like seed size increase, if that is not happening because humans preferred the bigger seeds, if it's happening unconscious to human behavior, then what is actually driving that process? And there's been a lot of proposed theories, things like burying a seed deeper in the ground when they plant the seeds. This would hypothetically mean that smaller seeds would not be able to make it to the sunlight and they would there would be a selection for larger seeds. So that's one theory that uh, has been put out there. But there are actually uh, over a dozen different theories. So I, I think the, the next step for us as archaeobotanists and also uh, geneticists working in this field collaboratively is to start to narrow down these different theories and kind of pinpoint one or maybe a few interacting variables that kind of led to this early change in, in the plants and animals. It's so, that idea of selection is a way of changing things. It's such a, you know, obviously Darwinian selection, but it's such a powerful idea still. I can't get my head around it. One of my favourite stories of selection, of artificial selection, humans being involved in the selection of domesticated animals it was Carl Sagan and I I think it was in the Cosmos series I think it may be not true but it's too good a story for it to be (laughs) not true but it was he was talking about he was in Japan and there was a particular group of people I think there were a a group of samurai warriors in ancient Japan or you know whenever Japan long long time ago and there was a a myth about a particular lake and the myth was this young samurai child in the midst of a battle, I think, apologies if I'm getting it wrong, was drowned in this lake and this kind of mythology grew around this around this story. And the fishermen in this lake would catch crabs. It's called the Haiku yeah, Crab. This is the, 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 story? F- the face on the crab, yes. The face on the crab. And, it, and it's like, you know, and the, the reason they had the crab as a face on because the fishermen would pull the crabs up and there would be a few crabs in the catch that would very vaguely have the image of a samurai warrior just in the in their shells and the way their shells turned out. And just out of respect, they'd throw those back. And, of course, those ones that got thrown back would breed. And so that face on the crab looks gets more and more, not to the point where it looks a bit like a samurai warrior. It looks exactly like a samurai. <laughs> and it's such an amazing thing that human creativity and human ideas 
can affect the natural world. I think it may be not true. I think yeah, someone disproved I, it. I, I do have a vague recollection of there being a follow-up study on that one, but I don't know where that specific one stands, but that is in the Cosmos series, the original Carol Sagan. Yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's such a great story. Whether it's true or not, it actually, as a hypothetical model, would be a great example of kind of unconscious domestication, whereas... Mm. Human behavior in this case, they weren't they weren't throwing those crabs back with the intention of their great grandchildren having all crabs with faces on their the back of their shells. They were doing it for a completely different reason. And it happened to, in this hypothetical scenario, lead to uh, a complete change in the population of the crabs. So when we think about the earliest domestication of plants and animals, what were the behaviors that humans were engaging in that unconsciously led to larger seeds in the overall cultivated population of, of whatever the, the plant is we're talking about. So wheat or barley or millet or uh, why were these seeds increasing in size if humans were not doing it consciously? Interesting. And then we say from there to the Big Mac. <laughs> Yes. I mean, there's, <laughs> a, there's, a, there's, there's a few steps in between, but yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is uh, what we're talking about. Uh, Robert, it's been absolutely delightful to talk to you. And your book about um, domestication, when's that coming out? I think we have about another six months or so. Okay. So, so stay tuned, but it's uh, Cambridge Press. and okay, Give us the top line. What's your central thesis? Basically, it's, it's a, a summary of all the arguments that we have right now that suggest that humans did not intentionally develop domesticated plants and animals early on. And looking at how that played out over the, the kind of long durée, the long, the long haul of human history. But it's titled Domesticating Earth, so stay tuned. It will be out soon. And you can follow me on my, my website or follow the progress of the book on the website as well. Awesome. Indiana Jones and the Domesticated <laughs> Earth. That would work. I can see yeah. that. <laughs> Robert, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a great discussion. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to tell your friends and family, etc. If you've enjoyed the show, why not try a little bit of baking? Try a bit of farming on your own. Or maybe just pop down to Sainsbury's. Either way is good. Don't forget to get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic you would like us to cover, an invention you'd like us to discuss, or a question you would like answered. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com, or you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram or whatever you like. Stop me in the street. And uh, we look forward to hearing your suggestions. We love your suggestions, and we take great pleasure being able to make programs about them. So get in touch and I will see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours 
of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.